Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. The NBA playoffs are here and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello, and welcome to Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories take us from two sporting stars turned men of war through a Navy commando, a family service on land, sea and air, to Market Garden with 30 Corps, and the art of mapping the war. We begin this week with this from Robert Blackadder. Good day to you chaps. The story of my great uncle Francis is told on the Battle of Britain monument. William Francis Blackadder was born on the 23rd of January 1913 in Edinburgh and joined 607 Squadron Auxiliary Air Force in early 1936. He was captain of the Northern Rugby Club and played for Scotland against England in the Calcutta Cup of 1938. He was called for full-time service at the outbreak of war and flew to France with the squadron on the 15th of November 1939. On the 11th of May, the day after the Blitzkrieg started, Blackadder shared in destroying a Heinkel 111 and claimed another, unconfirmed. On the 18th, he claimed a Dornier 17 destroyed, but return fire forced him to crash land near Denay. 607 Squadron suffered heavy losses and was withdrawn to England on the 22nd of May. Blackadder was awarded the DSO, the citation stating that he had shot down three enemy aircraft and carried out several very important reconnaissance of bridges and roads at a time when information was hard to come by. When the Battle of Britain began, 607 Squadron was stationed in the north of England at Usworth and on the 14th of August intercepted German raids coming in over the North Sea, Blackadder damaging two Heinkel 111s and destroying another the next day. The squadron was moved south to Tangmere on the 7th of September and on the 9th Blackadder shared in the destruction of a Dornier 17. On the 13th he damaged a Ju-88 and on the 14th shared two Ju-88s. On the 26th destroyed a Heinkel 111 and on the 4th shared in destroying another. 
On the 2nd of November 1940, he married Patricia Cale at Christchurch in Sunderland. On the 9th of November, Blackadder was posted to Turnhouse as sector controller in the operations room, later doing the same job at Usworth, Ouston, Prestwick and Eyre. He commanded 245 Squadron at Aldergrove from June 1941 to the 13th of July 1942, when he was posted to 10 Group as controller at Rudlow Manor. Blackadder went for a course at the Army Staff College, Camberley, on the 1st of January 1943, after which he was posted to HQ Fighter Command as Wing Commander Tactics on the 7th of May 1943. He moved to HQ Allied Expeditionary Air Forces on the 28th of September. Blackadder's final wartime posting was as CO of the Air Fighting Development Unit at Wittering. He was made an OBE and was released from the RAF on the 19th of November 1945. He rejoined 607 Squadron at Ouston in September 1946 and served with it until December 1948, after which he became CO of the Northumberland Wing, ATC, until the 1st of February 1951. He died on the 21st of November 1997. It's worth me adding that when he departed to France in 1939, he flew in the mighty Gloucester Gladiator and ended up fighting the remainder of the battle in a Hawker Hurricane. He kept a diary throughout his time in the RAF, which has been collated into a biography, The Diary of a Hurricane Pilot. My great-uncle has been a huge inspiration to me my whole life, and while I never met him, I'm very proud to share his name. All the best, Robert Blackadder. Thank you, Robert. Our next story comes from Sam Bromley. My granddad, Ray Bromley, was born in 1921 in Brighton and spent his early years in a boys' home. At the age of 16, he left to join the Royal Navy and after passing out of HMS Ganges, was posted to the new tribal destroyer, HMS Mohawk, in 1938. His pre-war was investigating ships in the Med during the Spanish Civil War. Ray saw his first enemy action in the 3rd of 4th in 1940 when the Mohawk was attacked by two Ju-88s. Bombs landed either side of the ship and the bridge was sprayed with shrapnel, killing Commander Jolly, who was to receive the Empire Gallantry Medal. Ray trained as an AA gunner. His station was the two-pounder pom-poms, his Navy service saw him take part in many actions, including the rescue of HMS Kelly from minefields and North Sea convoy patrols before being posted to the Med as part of the 14th Destroyer Flotilla. While in the Med, Mohawk and her crew took part in various convoys, including screening for Warspite and the battles of Calabria and Cape Matapan. Unfortunately, in 1941, Mohawk was lost along with 43 of her crew during the Battle of Torrigo Convoy. Ray survived the sinking and was picked up by HMS Jervis. Ray would serve on her and HMS Panther during the Battle of Crete as AA gunners were sorely needed in the Med. While en route back to England in 1942, after a spell in Malta, Ray volunteered for extra duties and Sue found himself in Scotland on HMS Armadillo. Here he trained for the Royal Navy Beach Commandos, one of 75 men of N Commando. After finishing his training and receiving his red lanyard, green beret and fighting knife, Ray was heading back to the Med, this time with commando training and a stripped Lewis gun for Operation Husky and the invasion of Sicily. Ray and N Commando also took part in Operation Baytown and Operation Shingle as well as various other small landings, actions and raids. 
he ended the war back in Scotland in 1945. Ray died in 2009 at the age of 88. Our next story comes from Gavin Jameson. I am currently finishing the manuscript for my book, Water's Gleaming Gold, about my wife's grandfather, Group Captain Hugh Jumbo Edwards, and my hope is that his remarkable life will be of interest to you. In 1926, he was rowing for Oxford in the boat race, when his collapse in the boat resulted in Oxford losing what was a very close race. He was encouraged to leave Oxford and to not go in a boat again. However, his passion was rowing, and after joining the London Rowing Club, he became the last man to win all three grand finals at Henley. And then, a year later, he won two Olympic gold medals in rowing at the Los Angeles Games of 1932. Jumbo then found a new love in flying and raced planes across the continent before enlisting in the RAF. During the war, he was in coastal command. As a wing commander for 53 Squadron, he was piloting his Liberator on a mission to protect a convoy in the North Atlantic from U-boat attacks. After attacking a U-boat and on their return to Cornwall, the Liberator lost all power in the engines and ditched into the ocean eight miles from the Scilly Isles. This was in November. He was the only survivor of a crew of eight. He had to inflate the dinghy and then rowed his way east in the hope of reaching land. He had a collapsed lung and a few fractured ribs from the violence of the crash. He was picked up the next morning by a passing minesweeper. In 1941, he was also asked to fly his Hampton, the flying coffin, to Essen on the second raid of the Night of the Thousand Bombers. His aircraft dropped their payload of bombs on the Krupp factory, but sustained damage from flak. After jettisoning anything they could to maintain height, they made it back to England. But only just. They were on one engine, and eventually were forced to crash land at an airstrip that was still being built. He went on to being the commander-in-chief in Reykjavik during the last year or so of the war. After the war, he left the RAF and went back to rowing to become one of Oxford's most famous rowing coaches. That was from Gavin Jameson. Thank you, Gavin. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. 
It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Next up, we have this story from Joshua Clubley. Hi guys, I live in Japan and love listening to the pod when I drive over the mountains to get to Osaka every weekend. I have several family stories for you from my close and extended family. They include all three services and the home front, so there is no land bias here. I had two cousins called Walden John Bigenden and Athol Eakins Bigenden. Both served during the Royal Navy in the First and Second World Wars and unfortunately both died during the Second War. Both also served as chief stokers and signed up in 1914 and trained on the same ship. Walden was killed in action aboard HMS Hood on the 24th of May 1941 during combat with the Bismarck. As I'm sure you know, only three of her 1,418-man crew survived and unfortunately, as a chief stoker, Walden was deep in the bowels of the ship when it was hit and did not survive. His brother Athol was killed three years later on the 8th of June 1944 on board HMS Minster a net-laying ship. It was escorting Mulberry units to Omaha Beach on Deep Day Plus 2 when it struck a mine off Utah Beach and sank. Unfortunately, most of the crew was a mess when the mine struck, so could not escape the sinking. Another distant cousin was called Peter Hogan Kanu. He was the son of my great-aunt and a Japanese man named Yasuzo Kanu, who emigrated to the UK between the wars. I imagine that being half Japanese during the Second World War would have been quite difficult for Peter. He joined Bomber Command in the RAF and was assigned to be a wireless operator in a Lancaster bomber. It was while serving in a Lancaster in 630 Squadron that he was killed in action. On the 21st of June 1944, his squadron took off to bomb a synthetic oil plant at Vesseling. During this mission, he was killed when his Lancaster was shot down during the early morning of the 22nd. The official report on his Lancaster being shot down stated... Believed shot down by a night fighter, crashing in flames between Hamont, Limburg, on the Belgian-Dutch border, and Bocholt. His brother had previously died as a small boy, and he had no further siblings. My father met Peter's father and mother once around 25 years after the war, and remembers them being very solemn. It is understandable to see why. My grandfather, Edward E. Clubley, served as a sergeant in the Indian paratroopers during the war. He tried to enlist before he was 18, as he wanted to be in the tank corps, but he was turned away as he accidentally said his actual birthday when asked how old he was instead of a fake one. He trained in the dental corps, but was not a dentist, and soon joined the Indian paratroopers and fought in Burma. During this time, he caught malaria several times. We don't know too much about what he did in Burma, as he never said much about it, and he died before I was born. 
But we do know that he fought with the Gurkhas, who, he used to recount, would fish with hand grenades by throwing them into rivers and then cooking whatever floated to the surface. He also said that he saw several Gurkha soldiers who would hang the ears of dead Japanese soldiers on their belts to show how many they had killed. When my father asked my grandfather if he had ever killed anyone, he said, I honestly have no idea. According to him, the jungle was so dense that you never saw the enemy and would just fire into bushes and trees. While in Burma, he was offered leave in the UK but turned it down to go travelling in Kashmir instead, as a boat ride back to the UK would have eaten up most of his leave. The ship he would have been on was later sunk on the voyage, so it was a good job he turned it down. I still have his Gurkha knife, which hangs proudly on my wall. Finally, my grandmother Eileen Jean Clubley, then Kemp, was a typist in the cabinet war rooms during the war. She said that she had no idea she worked in the war rooms as the actual entrance she had to use was away from horse guards and secret. She said that one day, while in the war rooms, she took a wrong turn and ended up in a room with a large map of Europe in it, with pins and other labels poked into it. She soon realised that she was in no way supposed to be in this room and quickly fled the scene before anyone saw her. I don't imagine it would have been very good for her if she was found in the map room. These are my family stories from the Second World War. For the Carno family, their family tree has ended, so I thought it would be right to try and keep Peter's name alive in some small way. Well, that's an extraordinary family heritage you have. And that was from Joshua Clubley. Our next story this week comes from James Shove. My father, Ron Shove, was a professional soldier for most of his life. I have his military records and gleaned the following information. Dad joined the Royal Signals as a boy soldier, aged 14 years and 11 months, on the 30th of April 1928. In 1939, he went with the BEF to France as a sergeant, with a command signal troop attached to the 12th Lancers. He was evacuated at Dunkirk, and I have the postcard he sent from my mother saying he was safe. From then until 1944, he moved around the UK. In June 1944, he was drill instructor with the Irish Guards and regimental sergeant major with the 49th West Riding Divisional Signals. The 49th West Riding were known as the Polar Bears due to the shoulder flash, which is a throwback to their time in Iceland. They were not involved in the D-Day landings, but I think they landed on D plus 5 and then fought all the way up through Europe as part of Monty's left flank, finishing the war near Amsterdam. They were heavily involved with some of the fighting around villas Bocage and were also part of the 30-core push for Operation Market Garden. Dad finally retired in 1969 as a Lieutenant Colonel Quartermaster after 42 years of service. Like most of his generation, he never spoke of his war. He passed away in 1997, aged 84. It is one of my biggest regrets that I never sat down and talked to him, but listening to the We Have Ways podcasts has helped me understand the man he was. Regards, Jim Shove. Thank you, Jim. And our next story is from Josh Fulton. Hello, I'm a history professor from Illinois and saw you were looking for stories of relatives in World War II. My great-uncle was Schaaf's map room officer, Major Ray Hayes. He grew up in central Illinois and had a PhD in meat and dairy science, so naturally the army put him in charge of maps. He served in a tank battalion before being tasked by Schaaf. He informed me a key reason he was selected was for his language abilities. He spoke French fluently. 
I had a chance to interview him at one point, and he talked to me about the process of Schaeff's map room, which was one of the few places that had the most accurate depiction of the daily line of battle in Europe. He told me they were responsible for setting everything up, keeping tabs on everything for Ike and others, and also photographing the map daily and sending the film to DC. He served in this position from a few months before D-Day through the surrender at Reims, which he was present for. He's in the background of one of the Life magazine photos of the surrender, which he was quite proud of. And that was from Josh Fulton. Our final story this week is from Bryony Evans. Hello. First of all, I would like to join many others in saying how much I enjoy the podcast. It has helped keep me sane in my first year of navigating parenthood. Recently, while clumsily trying to trace my family tree, I discovered my nanny's cousin served in Bomber Command during the Second World War. I don't have much information, as my family were apparently unaware, but what I have managed to gather is as follows. Flight Sergeant Kenneth Mitchell served as an air gunner on Lancaster's in 156 Squadron, who were based at RAF Upward. He flew several sorties in 1945, including taking part in the infamous Dresden Raid, before Lancaster PB-468 was shot down over Hamburg on the 31st of March 1945, with the loss of all her crew, Ken included. As I said, no one in my family has ever mentioned it before, so if you have any recommendations of where I can look to do more research into this, then I would be grateful. I'd hate for Ken's bravery to be forgotten by his extended family. Many thanks. Bryony Evans And if anyone does have any advice for how Bryony can do more research into this, please do get in touch and we'll make sure that's passed on. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the member's site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now.